0: It's Jeremy Myers, and you are listening to the Redeeming God podcast. So we're continuing our study of Ephesians chapter 2. And today we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, in which Paul discusses six sources of strife between the Jews and Gentiles in His day. And as we look through these six items, we will see they have many parallels to some of the things that causes us, us division and strife in our own day in our own churches, in our own culture and country today. And um, that will sort of set us up for the rest of the chapter in which we are told how to solve this division and strife, how to stop it. So that's where we're headed today. Now, uh, before we look at that, there is a question from a reader that I want to discuss, and his question is about the difference between a believer and a disciple. You've got mail, baby, yeah. So here's the question from the reader. He says, I have read over your page on the difference between a believer and a disciple more than once. And uh, by the way, if you want to read that, I've linked to that article in the notes section for this podcast at redeeminggod.com, Ephesians 2, 11, and 12. And anyway, his letter goes on, his email goes on and says this. Recently, I've started reading the Bible again after not reading it systematically for a long time. I tried being a disciple when I was about 18. I went to church for a few years, then I lost faith in God and quit. Now I'm 48, and my faith in God has returned. Your article says that if someone tries to be a disciple and fails then God will teach them, call them, etc., so that they can become a productive member of God's family. Are you saying that if someone fails at discipleship, they have to become a disciple again? Or are you saying that God will simply try and make all believers productive in one way or the other? So the short answer is yes. Uh, That's that second option is what I'm saying. You don't have to start over on your path of discipleship. You know, clearly you have to, yes, sort of become a disciple again because you you stopped being a disciple, at least you've stopped following Jesus, but you don't have to start all over. So I think it's most helpful to sort of think of discipleship. You often hear pastors and Bible teachers, and I myself have used this analogy a lot, of thinking of discipleship as a a, we often heard heard it referred to as the path of discipleship. So if you sort of think of discipleship as a road or a path or a trail. It's, it's sort of helpful. Uh, I once used lived in uh, New York. I've lived all over the United States, but most recently, well, prior to Oregon in New York, now I live in Oregon. And when I moved, obviously from New York to Oregon, I had to drive my car with my family across the roads and highways and interstate highways to get here. Okay. Now there was a map. I had planned my route in advance. Now imagine if I'm, I'm driving along and I just stopped driving. Hey, okay, pull off in a rest stop and, or at a town, and I say, I'm not going any further. Okay, well, uh, I'm still sort of on the path of discipleship. I'm not going backwards, but I'm also not going forward. All right, so, so that's sort of an analogy there. Now, what happens if uh, I'm driving along and I make a U-turn and head back the way I came? Well, uh, now I'm going backwards. And that, all that's doing is causing me to lose some of the progress I made and make my journey to Oregon longer. Or I could maybe make a wrong turn. Uh, Sometimes I make wrong turns uh, mistakenly, but sometimes, you know, I said, you know what? I'm tired of this road. I'm turning off here. I don't know where it goes, but I'm going that way. Uh, So an intentional wrong turn. And that could lead me in the wrong direction or could lead me in some loop. Or maybe if I keep doing that, it could just lead me to driving around in circles. Who knows? But again, the point is, if I'm doing that, I'm not really making progress necessarily on my journey to Oregon but I'm just prolonging it, okay? Now, when I do that, I've sort of left the route marked out for me uh, and I'm, I'm not making progress toward my destination, but at the same time, it's not like uh, when I do that, the journey resets and I have to start all over in New York, okay? So so I, I keep the progress I made, uh, but now I've just made my journey longer or more difficult or more costly or or whatever the case may be. Okay, so that's the same way it is in discipleship. God has marked out for us a, a, a path, a race, a journey, and He wants us to make progress on that by moving forward. We do that by following His instructions, learning His teachings, doing what He says, following the example of Jesus, uh, listening to other pastors and teachers and fellow Christians and their advice and what they have learned. And, and as we as we follow these examples and teachings and instructions, then we become more and more like Jesus, more and more godly, more and more Christ-like. And that, of course, is uh, one of the primary goals of discipleship. Okay, but of course, we can make wrong turns, we can stall out, we can pause, we can do all sorts of things that will cause us to stop along that path or head backwards on that path or just sort of get in a holding pattern or a, a circular loop on that path. When that happens, we don't start all over on the path of discipleship, but uh, we have made it more difficult. Uh, or, or more lengthy, or more costly, whatever the case may be, okay? So so that's sort of how all of this works. I hope that makes sense. And yes, of course, discipleship is much different than being a believer in Jesus. And again, that link in the notes section for this podcast study uh, explains that in more detail, okay? Now, one of the best parts about discipleship, sort of like a journey, is it is best to not travel alone. God has provided himself. He's provided scripture, He's provided the indwelling Holy Spirit, and of course, he's divided, uh, provided fellow travelers on the road to give us encouragement and insight and instruction and, and even praise as we make progress on our journey. And I hope that this podcast, this Redeeming God podcast, is one of the voices, one of the sources of encouragement and instruction that help you make progress on the path of discipleship. Uh, I thank you for listening to this podcast, it's, it's one of the primary reasons I teach it. Takes a lot of time and energy to do it, but I keep doing it because I know that you benefit from it. So thank you for listening. And if you found it helpful, uh, please think about sharing it with others as well uh, so that they can listen to it and and gain encouragement also. Okay? So that's uh, sort of a a short answer to the question. And I hope that the person who sent that in found it helpful. Let's get in with our study then of Ephesians chapter (laughs) 2. So we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 today. And this uh, is about some of the divisions and strife that existed in Paul's day between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, it's a normal part of human life and human nature and human culture to have divisions and strife. We all know that. Uh, in the New Testament times, one of the greatest barriers at the time was between slaves and freemen. Uh, especially between slaves and their owners they those who were free often looked down on slaves as being inferior you know slightly above animals and vice versa many slaves looked at their masters with contempt and resentment as well i can't believe he treats me that way doesn't he know i'm a human too okay and that's that's human nature to to want freedom and equality So uh, one of the the issues in the early church was getting Christian slave owners and Christian slaves to treat each other as spiritual equals. Paul talks about that. But it wasn't the only source of conflict. There was also conflict between men and women, between husbands and wives. In that day, at that time, husbands often treated their wives a little better than they treated their slaves. When a wife became a Christian, uh, her entire life and outlook and value system changed And sometimes an unbelieving husband wouldn't like that, and so he would divorce her, okay? Because uh, she had made such a radical decision without his consent. And so there were issues that the church had to deal with there. And then, of course, there were racial and cultural differences and strife as well. Like the Greek people were so proud of their—they thought they were were racially superior to everybody else. Everybody else is a barbarian. And uh, so that's Paul talks about in Romans 1.14 a little bit in Colossians 3. And um, but, but again, there's other divisions as well. Now, the main one that Paul is discussing here in Ephesians chapter 2 is the division that existed between Jews and Gentiles. And this is a division that had not existed from the very beginning but only sort of came into existence with Abraham's two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Uh, prior to that, there you know, everybody was one race in a sense. Now, there was division and strife, obviously. Uh, but this division between Jews and Gentiles, the sons of Isaac and the sons of Ishmael, uh, began with Abraham's two sons, and it has existed ever since for the last 4,000 years. And that's why there's this—continued to be this big struggle— over in Middle East to this very day. All right, now you think about the division between the Jews and the Gentiles. And what sort of division was it? Well, uh, it, it, it's a racial division, right? Because we have the quote-unquote race of the, the Jewish people and then everybody else, so there's race involved. But it's also a cultural division because of the different ideas and, and values and belief systems uh, of the various cultures. Uh, but beyond that, there was economic disparities, which which caused division, um, religious disparities, religious divisions because of the different belief systems, and you know the the Jews believed in one God, and Gentiles had all these other gods they worshipped, and, and and so there there was those sorts of things. There was political divisions, right? Different views on how to run Israel or run the world, and. Um, all sorts of things, okay? So you sort of take the things that divide us today, culture, race, religion, economy, politics, uh, even scientific views right now regarding COVID and vaccination status and things like that, okay? Um, and, And you lump those all together, and that is the division and strife that existed between Jews and Gentiles in Paul's day. It was sort of the ultimate nexus or ultimate storm of division and strife. And so that's one of the things Paul seeks to address in Ephesians chapter 2, especially verses 11 through 22. Now, uh, we've been working our way through Ephesians 2, and just by way of summary, you know, if you've ever heard sermons or Bible studies on Ephesians chapter 2, most Christians, especially Christian teachers and Bible study leaders and so on, tend to think that Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 is all about you know how we're great sinners, and so God sent Jesus so that we could have eternal life, not by not by works, but by but by faith in Jesus. Okay, um, and that is a message of Ephesians chapter two verses one through ten. But that is not the primary message, or even the main message, of those opening verses of Ephesians chapter two. One of the reasons we know that is because. Paul goes on in verses 11 through 22 that we're starting to look at today to apply what he has just taught in the first 10 verses of this chapter, okay? And if the first 10 verses were all about how to have eternal life, then Paul would go on to talk about how to live in light of that eternal life, or what that means for us after we die, or, you know, some of those related sort of concepts. But Paul doesn't do that. As we're going to start to see today... Paul turns to uh, problems that exist in our world today, and specifically this problem of division and strife that exists between various religions, cultures, societies, countries, and races. okay? And, and, and Paul is now going to show how everything he taught in verses one through 10, how that leads us as the church to live in unity with one another, and show the world how to live in unity and peace as well, all right? And so what that means is that verses 1 through 10 are not really about you were sinners, Jesus came, now you get eternal life, but rather you were sinners living in strife and division and hate and violence and accusation and blame and satanic scapegoating. That's verses 1 through 3, okay? Notice all this stuff that Strife and division, this is the problem, right? Problem, verses 1, 2, 3. Division, strife, hatred, jealousy, discord, satanic accusation, okay? Dead in sin, that's how Paul phrases it there. There's the problem. The solution is, God sent Jesus to show us a better way. And if we follow Jesus by faith in what he has shown us, then we can live in peace and unity. That's the solution application. Notice it's not about eternal life at all but About how to solve the problem of division and strife and being and death and violence, okay. So now we come to the application section in verses 11 through 22, and we're looking at verses 11 and 12 today. And here in these two verses, Paul lists six terms, uh, six phrases that describe this division and strife between Jews and Gentiles, okay. So um, let's just sort of uh, look at this real quick. uh, Verse 11, Paul says, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. Okay, so Paul sort of has this aside here where he says, look, this is between Jews and Gentiles, but sometimes you're referred to as uncircumcised and circumcised. Um, And he puts this little phrased in at the end, made in the hands by, or made in the flesh by hands. Okay, well, what is this about uncircumcision and circumcision? I'm not going to describe circumcision to you, you know what it is, but um, it's another way of of talking about Jews, the circumcised, and Gentiles, the uncircumcised. And Paul's little jab there at the end is, look, this was made in the the flesh by human hands. Uh, It's not really something God wanted. It's just Paul is just showing here that this is a human division, a human situation, okay? And this is the first division here. They were Gentiles in the flesh. Uh, they were uncircumcised, okay? And uh, this circumcision thing began all the way back with Abraham. And uh, it, it's it's uh, an outward sign sort of of this, this covenant that God made with the Jewish people, especially with Abraham and his offspring, his descendants, Okay, and, and then the Jews were proud of this outward sign of the covenant, and they despised anyone who didn't have this outward sign, who weren't, who weren't circumcised. Uh, in fact, um, I, I read one scholar who, here's a quote from him. He said, Jews said that Gentiles were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. How's that for a view? All right, uh, That God loved only Israel of all the nations that he had made, that the best of the serpents crushed, and the best of the Gentiles killed. (laughs) Uh, It was not lawful to render help to Gentile women in childbirth, for that would bring a Gentile into the world. The barrier between Jews and Gentile was absolute. If a Jew married a Gentile, then they carried out a funeral for that Jew. All right, Such contact with a Gentile was equivalent to death. Even to go into a Gentile's house rendered a Jew unclean. All right, and so on. So that was sort of the discord, the hatred, the jealousy that existed, uh, the strife that existed between Jews and Gentiles. And um the the Jews basically at that time despised the Gentiles. That's not the case today. I'm not saying anything anti-Semitic here. I'm just describing the situation as it was in the days of Paul. Okay, so so this this the statement here, also at the end, uh, by the flesh, again, it just sort of a Paul is, is making a little jab. He says, this isn't has nothing to do with God. This is something. Uh, in fact, in, in Philippians 3, 2, Paul calls the circumcised group, he's called mutilators of the flesh. Okay? And then in Romans 2, Paul talks, he, she reveals that real circumcision, it's not done in the flesh by, by hands of men, but in the heart by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, uh, the first thing then, this first element of division and strife, is that the Gentiles were despised by the Jews. The Jewish people at that time thought that they were superior to others because they had a covenant with God. They had a special revelation. They had better morals. They had a piece of skin cut off of their body. (laughs) Okay, now does any of this sound familiar for today? It should. Uh, There are some today who think they are superior to others, you know, for a wide variety of outward reasons. Well, I voted for so-and-so. That makes me better than you. Or vice versa. You voted for so-and-so. That makes you, you know, fill in the blank. A racist. An idiot. uh, uh, You know, whatever. Um, I'm superior to you because I believe in one God. and, and, And you believe in all sorts of gods. Or you don't believe in a God, okay? I'm superior to you because I have more money and fame and power. And people know me, right? I got millions of followers on social media. That means everybody should listen to me. (laughs) A big one recently, I'm superior to you because I got a vaccine. (laughs) Um, Paul would say, stop dividing because of who got jabbed in the flesh. Stop dividing over who got a little piece of flesh cut off of, you know, their body. Same concept, same idea. Paul says all Paul basically is saying here, in light of what we saw back in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, all such division is satanic. If you're dividing over others about whether they got a vaccine or not, um, that's satanic. That is satanic division. And those who are pushing it today are falling prey to satanic accusation and satanic division. Satan wants us to divide over such silly outward things. So, this is the first thing that divided Jews and Gentiles, and we see a parallel today. But Paul's not yet done. There are five more characteristics, five more things that divided Jews and Gentiles, and he lists them all in verse 12. All right, so the second one is, uh, Ephesians 2, 12, that at that time you were without Christ. Okay, well, this Paul's, what Paul means here is pretty obvious. The, the Gentiles didn't have Christ. Um, They lived under the old... Uh, world order, the, the, you know, the way of um, basically the way everybody else lives who aren't Christians today, and, and specifically it was the way of rivalry and violence and scapegoating and blame and slander, accusation, victimization, all those things we talked about back in our studies of verses 1 through 3. Uh, the Ephesians themselves, before they became Christians, for the most part they worshipped the goddess Diana. And so, of course, at that time, before Paul came to preach the gospel to them, they knew nothing about Christ. They were without Christ. They were under condemnation. Okay? So you might say, okay, but Jeremy, how does that cause division? How does that cause strife? Well, uh, the word Christ here is the Greek word Christos, and of course, its Hebrew equivalent is Mashiach, or in, in English, that would be Messiah. So... Uh, one of the things that separated Jews from Gentiles is Jewish people often looked down their noses at Gentiles because they said, look, we are the ones through whom the Messiah, the Messiah, the Christ, will come. And it was a common belief among Jewish people that when Messiah came, he would come primarily for the Jewish people. Remember earlier, I, uh, there was a Jewish belief at the time that Gentiles were made just to kindle the fires of hell just to be burned up, okay? And so that when the Messiah, when he came, he would come to set up the Jewish people as the foremost people group over the earth, and everybody else would be their slaves and their servants, or would just be killed uh, because they were worthless human beings. Uh, They would be killed by the Messiah, subjugated by the Messiah, okay? And so this view of the Messiah, the coming Messiah, often gave Jewish people a sense of superiority over the Gentiles. The Gentiles don't have a Messiah. The Messiah is not coming from them or even for them. He's coming for us. Okay, and so this would be the second cause of division and strife because it caused this, this sense of us versus them. Okay, the Messiah caused this division. And uh, that's what, that's what Paul's talking about here. Okay, the third source of division then is that the Gentiles were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. All right, this is just another way of saying that the Gentiles were excluded from being part of God's people. Uh, They were not citizens of Israel. All right, Uh, they were without citizenship in Israel, without citizenship in the, the family, the people of God. Okay, and so as a result of this, many Jewish people said, well, since they're not part of our people group, since they're not part of the family of God, the people of God, therefore, God doesn't love them, God doesn't care for them. All right, they were they were uh, separate from all the blessings and protection and love and covenants and priesthood and sacrifices and promises and guidance that the people of Israel enjoyed. The Gentiles are without all that. Therefore, they're worthless human beings, sort of a concept, okay? <laughs> and we may look down our nose, how could they view people that way? But we do the same thing today in, 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 in various ways today. Um, we currently, just one example, we have a major humanitarian crisis at our southern border. There are aliens down there, right? We hear law, a lot of talk about illegal aliens. Well, here Paul is talking about aliens from the Commonwealth of Israel. Uh, immigrants. How do we treat immigrants? And there's a big debate about this. It causes division and strife, isn't there? Here's the thing. There's all this name-calling about uh, people who you don't care for immigrants and all that sort of thing. But the fact of the matter is everybody cares about immigrants. Everybody. I mean, okay, it might be exaggeration. There might be a few people here or there somewhere that don't, don't care about immigrants. Uh, but in general, all people from all political sides of the political aisle care about immigrants. And the question isn't, do we care about immigrants, but how should we care about immigrants? Hey, what's the best way? There's immigrants from all over the world. What's the best way to take care of them? Should we just bring them all here to the United States? Is that the best way? Or is there a better way to care for immigrants in the countries that they are from? Maybe bettering their situation there so that uh, life uh, is improved there for their families and their children. Job opportunities are created there. Maybe that's a better way. Living conditions in those countries are improved where they're from so that they can stay there in their home country and have good opportunities there. You know, people don't come to the United States just because it's the United States. They want to come here because of the opportunities and the freedoms that we have. Well, what if those similar freedoms and opportunities were created elsewhere? Uh, Then people wouldn't necessarily want to come here because they would have those sorts of opportunities there. Maybe that's a better way to care for the immigrants. I personally think it is. Not opposed to immigration coming to the United States, but I often feel like this current situation with immigration and this humanitarian crisis at the southern border, it's a political tool right now, and uh, immigrants should not be used as political tools. All right? So anyway, uh, it's a citizenship issue. It's an uh, alien issue in a sense that Paul talks about here, and of course, it's incredibly divisive. The fourth item then from Ephesians 2.12 that causes division and strife is the Gentiles were strangers from the covenants of promise. All right, so obviously God had never made promises to the Gentile people. He would not made any covenants with them. Oh, sure, there's the Noahic covenant. sort of to all the people of the world in the rainbow that God would never send the flood, never destroy them with flood in the same way again sort of idea. But the main covenants, like the, the, the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with David, the Davidic covenant, the Messiah would come through the line of David. Okay, These, these were to the people of uh, Israel alone. And so in broad terms, God did not make covenants or promises to the Gentile nations. So they were considered strangers to the covenants, to the promises. And uh, so therefore, sometimes Jewish people would look down upon them. Well, God didn't make any promises to them, so he doesn't care about them. He doesn't love them. I don't need to make any promises with them or covenants with them. Sometimes Jewish Pharisees, as we know from the Gospels, would would pray, you know, God, I give thanks. I'm a Jew and not a Gentile. I'm so glad I'm, I'm a Jew and not like this sinner over here. Okay. Now, why did they have that view? Again, it's because God didn't make covenants with them. And sometimes we see this same view in various churches, in various groups today. once had a conversation with a man a couple of years, uh, several years back now. Now, he was a Calvinist. If you don't know about Calvinism, I have several posts on my website about it. Just go to the main page, redeeminggod.com, scroll down a little bit, and there's a section there called the Words of God and the Words of Calvinism. Or maybe it's the Words of Calvinism and the Word of God. Anyway, I'm not done with that series uh, I started it about nine years ago and sort of stopped partway through. Eventually, I hope to get back and finish it. But you can learn there about sort of the basic beliefs of Calvinism. But I digress. Um, uh, this this man I talked to, he had a very strong view about election and election primarily that uh, God calls those who are going to be His believers, His children. And because of this man's belief in divine sovereignty of God, that God is always getting his way, his will can never be thwarted, he basically had the view that he didn't need to share the gospel with unbelievers because God would call them. If they were his elect, then God would make sure they became Christians without this man's involvement. And I challenged him on that because that's really sort of... Even most Calvinists don't have that view. It's sort of a perversion of, of Calvinistic teaching. If you're a Calvinist, you know that. Um, but this man held that view, and I challenged him on it, because actually at the time I was a Calvinist, and I said, you know, that's not right. Uh, God ordains the means as well, uh, and so God needs you. Anyway, he, he, his response shocked me. He said, I'm not going to cast pearls before swine. <laughs> uh, okay, so he has this view that, that Gentiles are swine that non-believers, non-Christians are swine, and he's not going to cast the pearls of the gospel before them that they might trample the, these teachings under their feet. That's, this was his idea. Okay, Same concept, same idea that we sort of see here that Paul is talking about that some religious people have about non god doesn't hasn't made promises to them, covenant with them, therefore God doesn't love them, therefore I am not going to love them. And it's all completely wrong. But you see, it causes division and strife. The fifth element, source of division and strife then, according to Paul here, is that Gentiles are without hope. Okay, Um, this is a bit of an exaggeration in the sense that, of course, Gentiles have hope. Everybody has hope. Almost everybody uh, hopes for the future, hopes that they're going to get a better job or a raise, or their marriage is going to get better, their kids are going to turn out, they're going to get better from their sickness. Okay, okay. So everybody have, has hope of some kind. So when Paul says here that they were without hope, um, he's not making a blanket universal statement that Gentiles had no hope whatsoever in anything at any time. Okay, uh, he, He's talking primarily about uh, the hope we have in Jesus Christ, the hope of the gospel, the hope of uh, God re- coming to restore and redeem and reconcile all things to himself. It's true, the Gentiles didn't, and most non-believers, because they don't know about such things, uh, they don't have hope in that, okay? So um, what happened, though, is when, when when Gentiles don't have that hope, then the Jewish people look down upon them and think, oh, well, they don't have any real prospects, they're not going anywhere, their only hope is for their next meal or for their next party or for their next, you know, whatever, their next car, their next possession, their next vacation, they don't really have hope in anything worthwhile or valuable, okay? And lots of Christians view non-Christians the same way today. We we often are guilty of viewing the hopes of the unbelieving world as empty and meaningless and pointless, okay? All they want is their next meal and their next drink and their next vacation. That's not valuable, and we look down upon up them for that, and it causes division and strife. Uh, finally, then sixthly, it's sort of a summary of all the others. But basically, there at the end of verse twelve, God or, or Paul says the Gentiles were without God in the world. Uh, the Greek word here for without God is athios. It's where we get our word atheist. Okay. Um, now the fact that they were athios doesn't mean they didn't believe in in a God. It's just the opposite, in fact. They believed in many gods. Most Gentiles in Paul's day were polytheists. I'm sorry, pantheists. Yeah, polytheists. They believed in many gods. And so uh, Paul is not saying they don't believe in any gods. They just didn't believe in the one true God. And Paul talked about this in his sermon at the Mars Hill in Athens. Remember that? He said he saw... Uh, all of these, these uh, altars to gods, and one of them was altar to an unknown god, and he was here to tell them about that unknown god, so on. Okay, so Paul wasn't, wasn't saying that they they didn't believe in any gods, but they didn't know the one true God. And this was a source of contention between Jews and Gentiles. Jews looked down upon Gentiles for not worshiping the one true God. You don't worship the true God. You worship a bunch of false gods, man-made gods, made, you know, idols made by human hands, okay? And it was a source of contention. And we have a similar contention that often uh, rears its ugly head today between religious groups. You know, we condemn other religious groups for worshiping false gods, and of course they do the same to us, and it causes division and strife, okay? So those are the six things Paul lists here, and he hasn't listed any, he hasn't offered any solutions yet, but that will come in verse 13 and following, which we'll pick up next time, okay? And the thing is here is Paul is reminding the Ephesian Christians about this. Why? Why would Paul go to such great detail here to remind the Ephesian Christians of the negative ways that they used to be treated by their Jewish brethren? I believe that Paul was writing these things to the Ephesian Christians, you know, telling them, remember how you used to be treated because it's likely that the Ephesian Christians were starting to look down their theological noses at their non-Christian friends and neighbors with scorn and derision. You know, they were starting to feel superior to others, to feel smarter, to feel maybe like God loved them more than anyone else. And Paul is coming along and saying, hey, remember how it felt When the Jewish people looked down their noses at you, make sure, uh, it seems like you are starting to view non-Christians the same way that you used to be viewed. This is a great problem in religious circles. We didn't like the way Christians used to treat us and view us and act toward us, and then we become Christians and we start to view other people, treat other people the same way. Okay, and it's a a good reminder here, and this is what Paul is reminding Ephesian Christians about and reminding us as well about 2,000 years later. Don't forget your past. Now, if you didn't grow up in the church, then you might have the experience of feeling judged, ridiculed, shamed, or maybe even hated by certain groups of Christians. Certainly not loved by Christians. Okay, and maybe you have that experience. Maybe not, and if not, that's great, but maybe you do. Uh, and it's a sad reality, sad fact, that some Christians do look down upon non-Christians, condemn them and accuse them and criticize them, and all of that is satanic behavior. And so Paul is calling them away from that. He didn't. He's saying, you didn't like it when it was directed your way, so make sure you don't do that to other people. Do you remember what it felt like? Make sure you don't treat other people that way. We're called to be part of the family of God for a reason, not to be a curse to other people, but to be a blessing to them. And that's what Paul is calling the Ephesian Christians to do, to remember the way they used to be treated and make sure they don't treat other people the same way. All right? Uh, There's an old hymn that used to be sung years and years ago by certain churches around the country. Um, I'm not sure how common it was, but I did find this in some hymn book a while back, and I don't know the tune, but here's how the words go. We are the Lord's elected few. Let all the rest be damned. There's room enough in hell for you. We won't have heaven crammed. (laughs) Wow. Okay? There's the view, the perspective, the mindset that Paul is saying that we should not have. Okay? (laughs) Okay? that That reveals this this religious mindset that Paul is calling us away from. It's horrifying to view non-Christians that way. And yet we know we're guilty of it sometimes ourselves. We know other Christians sometimes view non-Christians that way. It was happening in the days of Paul with the Ephesian Christians, and Paul was saying, "Stop it. Don't do that anymore, okay? And I hope that none of us, you listening, that me, feel this way about non-Christians. We sometimes fall prey to it, but I, I want to, uh, hope, hopefully you and I can start protecting ourselves, warding ourselves from feeling that way, thinking about that way, viewing our non-Christian neighbors and friends and co-workers that way. We're supposed to love them. We're supposed to be concerned about them. We're supposed to share the love of Christ with them, whether they become Christians or not. It's our duty. It's our responsibility to be a blessing rather than a curse to them. Okay. And so one of the ways to do that is remember what it was like when we were treated with derision and scorn. Make sure we do not treat other people the same way. Now, it's a little difficult to do, but Paul is going to go on in verse 13 through 22 to show us how to do that, okay? He's going to apply what we just learned from Jesus in verses 4 through 10 to show us how we can live in this world with unity and love rather than with hate, division, and strife. And that is where we're going to pick up next week when we study Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. We'll pick up then. Thanks for listening today. We'll see you next time.